if you've got your Bibles, please turn in them to Revelation chapter 6. We're continuing our study through the book of Revelation. Last week, we were in the first half of chapter 6, which covered the first of seven, the first four of the seven seals that, that are sealing that scroll that in, is in Jesus' hand that he took from the one who is seated on the throne. Those first four seals were the four horsemen of the apocalypse. They represented judgment from God, poured out on sin, and bringing tribulation to mankind. This morning, we're going to look at the fifth and sixth seals that are found in the second half of Revelation chapter 6. Now, before we do this, I thought it would be helpful for us to back up a little bit and try to get, a, get the context of what is happening both in these seal judgments and the other judgments that are coming in the ensuing chapters. So I want us to back up for just a moment before we dive in and look at this from the 30,000 foot level before we dive back into the weeds of chapter 6. Chapters 6 through 16 could be summarized by saying that John, in his vision, sees three sequences of seven judgments. Here in chapter 6, we see the seven seals, the seven seal judgments. They'll be followed by seven trumpet judgments. That, in turn, will be followed by seven bowl judgments. So this scroll, which Jesus holds in his hand now, the lamb holds it in his hand. He got it from the one sitting on the throne. This scroll that contains, as we said, God's sovereign and divine plan to punish sin once and for all, ultimately redeem his people forever, and restore all things and make all things new. This scroll is shut. It is sealed with seven seals. Now, these seven seal judgments happen as the seals are broken. They are not the end. They are preliminary. They are a preview of what's contained in the scroll. They're a preview of the end. The first four seals that we covered last week, like we said, were the first four horsemen. Um, those represented tribulation that began with Jesus' resurrection and continued throughout the church age. In the second half of chapter 6, as we'll see this morning, we'll see seals 5 and 6. After that, there's an interlude. There's a parenthesis. In, in chapter 7. And then the seventh seal will begin in the opening verse of chapter 8. That in turn will give way to the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpet judgments are presented in a very similar format as the seals were. The first six are found in chapters 8 and 9. And then we have an interlude. We have another parenthesis in chapters 10 and 11. And then the seventh trumpet is found in the second half of chapter 11. After that, we have another interlude, chapters 12, 13, and 14, and then that gives way to the seven bold judgments in chapters 15 and 16. Now, some look at this sequence of seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bold judgments and see in them simply a retelling of the same story over and over again. Others look at this sequence and they see a very clear uh, building from one set of judgments to the other. That the seal judgments build and intensify into the seven trumpet judgments and they in turn build and intensify in severity to the bowl judgments. 
I take a middle approach to those two broad views. And I see that in some sense there there is a kind of building in intensity that we'll see as we go along here. But there is also what I might call a telescoping effect that is happening from the seals to the trumpets to the bowls. The seven seals begin with the resurrection of Christ and his ascension into heaven, which is the inauguration of the church. And the tribulations that result from the breaking of these seven seals continues all the way to the end of the church age before Christ returns. But since the breaking of the seventh seal then gives way to the opening of the scroll, it stands to reason that since the seal judgments, as we've said, are a preview of what is in the scroll, then some of what we find in the subsequent trumpet judgments is, in fact, I believe, a retelling of at least some of what we've seen in the seal judgments themselves. And I think we see that same telescoping effect when the trumpet judgments give way then to the bold judgments in chapter 16. So that's that's kind of help us with a broad view picture of the various judgments over the next several chapters. So let's dive now into the end of chapter 6 and look at the fifth and the sixth seals. As we do, let us be reminded that what we have here in these seal judgments, the fifth and sixth one included, is a general picture and a preview picture of what is contained in the scroll itself. So let's read Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, continuing through to the end of the chapter. This is God's word. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful that we hold in our hand your word. We are thankful that we can trust this to be your very breath 
We ask, Father, that you would give us this morning the ability to comprehend not only what it says, but what it is to mean to us as we seek to live as faithful followers of Jesus until he returns or takes us home. Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you would remove me from any focus and that, Lord, you would take center stage and you would speak to us, your people, from your word to sanctify and edify us, to prepare us to persevere no matter what tribulations may come in our lifetime or the lifetime of our children and their children. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've got a fifth and a sixth seal of seven. The fifth seal in in, in verses 9 through 11 is a vision of martyrs in heaven. And the sixth seal in verses 12 through 17 is a vision of some very bad things happening on the earth. A preview of what I will suggest to you is a picture of the end of the world. And in my opinion, the final judgment. As with the four first seals that we saw last week, Jesus opens each of these. The lamb opens the seal. It breaks the seal. But contrary to those first four seals, in those first four seals, after he breaks the seal, one of the four living creatures cries out, come, and a horse and a rider come forth, and they're sent to the earth to bring tribulation. But with these seals... When they're broken, John sees something. In verse 9, he sees martyrs. He sees a picture of heaven, and he sees martyrs under the altar. In verse 12, he sees a vision of terrible things happening on the earth. So one is a vision of heaven, and the other is a vision of the earth. So let's look at the vision of heaven first, the fifth seal Beginning in verse 9, John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony they had borne. So who are these that John saw in this vision? Well, let's think about his original audience. For those to whom John originally wrote the Revelation, the churches, the believers in the churches of Asia Minor, they would understand these to be the early Christians who had been slain because of their faith in Jesus Christ during their lifetime in the first century. We've already mentioned that uh, persecution was a, a normal part of life for Christians in the first century in this part of the world. Uh, Jesus referred to it in most of his letters written to these churches in chapters 2 and 3. For example, in chapter 2, verse 13, in his letter to the church at Pergamum, Jesus writes this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my fellow, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so there had already been many martyrs Already, Antipas among them, who had been put to death because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so, when John describes this vision of the souls of those who had been murdered for their faith in Christ, they would have thought of guys like Antipas and his compatriots 
who had been put to death already to that point in the first century. And they would see that they're part of the martyrs in this vision. And upon hearing about these martyrs, or at least about their souls, because it's just the souls here, not their bodies, they, like us, are awaiting the resurrection of the body. But upon hearing about the souls of these martyrs who had died because of their faith in Jesus Christ, that they're in heaven, these first century readers would have been tremendously encouraged by that. They themselves were likely to endure very similar persecution and perhaps even called upon to offer their lives on the altar of martyrdom. But today, when we read John's vision here, we think not only of the first century martyrs, but we think of all the martyrs since then. Recorded history tells us that there have been more Christian martyrs in the 20th century than in all of the previous 19 centuries combined. And the first 21 years of the 21st century doesn't show any sign of that slowing. And Jesus promised this, right? Jesus promised that this was going to happen more and more the closer that we get to the end. In his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, Jesus says this, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for, not, for my name's sake. There is coming a day, there is coming a time when because of my name and for my name's sake, you will be delivered over to tribulation, you will be hated by all nations, and you will be put to death. Jesus promised this. Dr. Todd Johnson, who's professor of global Christianity and missions at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in Boston, says this, We estimate that more than 70 million Christians have been martyred over the last two millennia since the uh, resurrection of Christ, more than half of which died in the 20th century under fascist and communist regimes. We also estimate that 1 million Christians were killed between 2001 and 2010, and about 900,000 were killed between 2011 and 2020. Now, in the 21st century, what Dr. Johnson calls fascist and communist regimes in the 20th century have given way now to radical Islamic terrorists as the primary persecutor of Christians in the 21st century. Eight of the 10 countries found on the 2021 World Watch List, a publication put out by Open Doors USA chronicling the worst nations in the world with regard to persecution, eight of the top 10 on that list are predominantly Muslim countries where conversion to Christianity puts one at great risk for being killed if they do not renounce their faith in Jesus. In Nigeria, ForTheMartyrs.com reports that there were 1,350 new Christian martyrs last year, 2020. Christians in Nigeria have been been being persecuted by the radical Islamic group Boko Haram for the last several years. And last year, they killed 
over 1,300 believers because they were trusting in Christ. One Christian leader said of the church in Iran in June of last year, a church without martyrs would be like a tree without fruit. Imagine determining the fruitfulness of your church by the martyrs it gave up. We don't measure fruit in the American church in that way. So as we consider fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who have given their lives because of their belief in Jesus Christ, their faith in a resurrected Christ over recent years, and even today because of their faith in Christ, how encouraging it is to be reminded here that they too are in this scene of heaven in John's vision as he sees the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. It's encouraging because we know that they're with Jesus. We see them there in this scene. They finished their race. They received their crown. They are the ones who conquered as Jesus exhorted the early churches in chapters 2 and 3 to conquer and persevere. Persecution did not conquer them. They, through Christ, conquered it. And note that in this vision, John says that they are under the altar, which is a reference to their sacrifice. At the altar in the temple in Jerusalem, which is being symbolized here in John's vision, the sacrifice was offered on the altar, and then the blood of the sacrifice was poured on the base of that altar. And that's what John describes here in this vision in heaven that these martyrs are under the altar which means that when they were put to death when they were slayed because of their faith in Jesus Christ it was a sacrifice not only and and perhaps not even predominantly on earth it was a sacrifice in heaven it was a sacrifice at the altar before the throne of God what a privilege for these brothers and sisters to have offered such a sacrifice in worship of their God and ours. Will we be asked to give up our life and to go to the grave for our faith in Jesus Christ in this lifetime? What about our children's lifetime or their children's lifetime? Perhaps we will. But even if we are not, Jesus tells us to pick up our cross and follow him. He says to his disciples in Matthew 16, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In Luke's gospel account, he records that Jesus says that we must do this daily. Take up our cross and follow him. In one sense, we could understand this as meaning that Jesus is telling us that following him involves denying self and living for him and not living for us. But church, in a much more radically foundational and fundamental way, Jesus was really telling them that one of the characteristics of being a disciple of his is being willing to die for him at any moment. The cross was nothing less than a symbol of execution. 
And so when Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me, it meant be willing to die for your faith in me. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, bring your last will and testament because it may cost you your life. And who knows? Perhaps the Lord will ask one of us to give up our life on the altar of martyrdom. Maybe he'll ask many of us in our lifetime to do that, to give up our lives for him. We don't know. We just simply can't see that. But if he does, if he does require that of us, we are certain of one thing. If he requires that of you, then you're in this picture too. You're in this scene in Revelation 6 where the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they had borne were under the altar of God in this incredible scene. And what do the martyrs say? What do they want? Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So they plead with the, excuse me, with the sovereign Lord to, to judge and avenge those who had killed them on the earth. This is not sinful vindictiveness. This is a plea for righteous justice. This is not unlike the imprecatory psalms uh, where the psalmist pleads with God to pour out judgment and retribution on their enemies. In Psalm 69, David asks of God regarding his enemies, let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. That is an imprecatory request. Let their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. Wow. Now we have to be careful with our application of the imprecatory psalms. Because unlike these souls in heaven, we still have a sinful flesh. We still have a sin nature. And with it, the very high likelihood that our pleas for justice are also mixed with sinful vengeance. But not so with these, not so with these souls uh, of the martyrs that John sees in this vision. They're asking God to bring judgment and vengeance on their enemies and to avenge their blood. And in doing so, they appeal to God's holiness and his trueness, if trueness is a word. Because, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. See, God's holiness cannot allow the evil done to these martyrs to go unpunished. Holiness requires that evil and sin be punished. And God's trueness means that he will be faithful and true and loyal to his own children. And so this was what they plead with God to do, to bring judgment and vengeance against those who had killed them. So how does God reply? Verse 11, then they were each given a white robe. The white robe signifies purity. When we get to chapter 7, 
and we see the, the multitude from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language before the throne worshiping the Lamb. We see this incredible uh, throne, throng of people worshiping Jesus. They are also wearing white robes in that scene. And how do those robes get white? We're, well, we're told in, in seven, Revelation 7 verse 14, one of the elders tells John in that part of the vision, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Their robes were made white because they were dipped in the blood of the Lamb. The sacrificial blood of Jesus spilled at Calvary, spilled at the cross, has washed them to become white robes. They are literally washed in the blood of the Lamb. Same with these martyrs. They're given these white robes. And, and let's be clear here. They're not given these white robes because of their sacrifice for Jesus. They are given these robes because of Jesus' sacrifice for them. It's not because of the great thing that they had done. It's because of the great thing that Jesus has done for them. They're given the white robe. And friend, believer in Christ, so will we. We will be given a white robe dipped in the blood of the Lamb. That's the only way we can stand before Him. And so He gives them a white robe, and then God answers their plea in verse 14, continuing. He told them to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now, we glean two very important truths. From God's answer to their request, their prayer request, that he pour out judgment and wrath on their enemies. The first lesson that we learn is that judgment is coming. Judgment is on the way. It's going to happen. It's coming. He says, rest a little longer until. Until. Which tells us that he's going to answer their prayer for judgment. Just not yet, but it's coming. You see, from an earthly perspective, sometimes it seems as though evil and unrighteousness are winning. But friend, it's just a matter of time before the scroll is opened. It's just a matter of time. That scroll is going to be opened and God's divine plan to answer all evil, end all unrighteousness, punish all sin, and judge all mankind, His plan to do that will be executed. The judgment that these martyrs are asking for is coming. The real avenger is on the way. It's just a matter of time. Just not yet. The second thing we learn from God's reply here is the reason for the not yet. And the reason for the not yet is that more martyrs will be added to this scene. God tells them, rest a little longer until, until what? Until the full number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Some of the martyrs in this scene, in John's vision, are there because of the four horsemen that we saw in the first four seals. Because again, that's been happening all along. 
Remember, these seal judgments are judgments from God to bring tribulation on the earth. And, and as we mentioned last week, some of them, namely death and Hades in particular on the pale horse, seem to be demonic and, and evil in nature. But we learn that Jesus had them on a leash because he had the keys of death and Hades, remember? And he, and he, he was given the, the keys of death and Hades because of his crucifixion and resurrection. And because he has them on a leash, that meant that, that evil would never be allowed unrestrained access to them, but only such access as God sovereignly wills in order to accomplish his purposes. And apparently, for these souls under the altar in John's vision, that access included ending their earthly lives. Did that mean that Jesus' leash broke? And that evil became unrestrained and went out of control? Of course not. But in order for God's sovereign will for them to be accomplished, Jesus had to let out a little bit bit more slack in the leash. And that allowed the evil forces to take their earthly lives away from them. And this means that God was sovereign over their martyrdom. And now we learn here in this verse that God also sovereignly wills that there will be more of their number. He knows what that is to the point where he knows what that number is and that number has not yet been reached. We've noted that many, many more have been added to this picture since that time, since the writing of this book, some 70 million and counting. And apparently that number is still not yet complete. But one day it will be. One day that number will be complete. And then God will answer their plea for judgment and vengeance. And upon mention of that, that it's coming, and it's just a matter of time, John now sees the fateful sixth seal broken. What we have in verses 12 through 17 here is John describing a day of wrath and tribulation on earth such as the earth has never beheld before. And in an attempt to describe what he sees, John uses language that was very familiar to himself and to his audience that was found in the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament. John leans very heavily on both apocalyptic and prophetic Old Testament passages of Scripture in order to paint a picture of a great tribulation and judgment on the earth. And it's clear to me that those Old Testament passages that he borrows from, that John is painting a picture here of the end of the world. The Old Testament Scriptures that John quotes here and alludes to very clearly are pointing to what the Old Testament calls the coming great day of the Lord, the final judgment. So let me show you this. Verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. Earthquakes were a regular symbol and are a regular symbol in the book of Revelation of the final judgment. We're going to see this over and over again as we unpack this book. Earthquakes throughout Old Testament prophecy always pointed to a coming judgment from the Lord. We see it in Jeremiah, we see it in Ezekiel, we see it in Joel, we see it in the prophet uh, Nahum. 
And then he says, And the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood. Let me read that again. The sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood. Now listen to the prophet Joel as he speaks of the coming great day of the Lord. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Isaiah said in chapter 13, verse 10, The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. In Ezekiel, he writes, I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. Now, while the passage there out of Isaiah and Ezekiel had a partial historical fulfillment in their day, in the destruction of the Babylonian empire and then the Egyptian empire respectively, those passages also had an eschatological focus as well, pointing to the final judgment. As all judgment from God does. Friend, all judgment from God throughout history is only partial, restrained, and temporary. And it points to the coming final judgment, which is complete, unrestrained, and eternal. And that's what's being described here in the sixth seal. So, you see, instead of us trying to spin our wheels, trying to find a literal and tangible picture of what it is John is describing here, like what this looks like, what he saw with his eyes, I believe that we're to spend our time considering what he's trying to communicate to us. So we're not to spend our time wondering, I wonder what might cause the sun to turn to darkness. Oh, I guess that's a solar eclipse. And then we pull out the solar calendar and we find out when the next one is and we start predicting the end of the world. Instead, when, since John is relying so heavily here on Old Testament scriptures that were already known we should conclude that he's describing what those passages themselves are describing. And what they're describing is the coming great day of the Lord, the final judgment. Look with me at verses 13 and 14. John says, And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now listen to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 34, verse 4. All the host of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Isaiah was prophesying about a time when God would judge the nations. And friend, that is exactly what the Old Testament describes will happen at the coming great day of the Lord. He will judge the nations at the final judgment. So this is very figurative language, but what is he saying? What's he describing? He's describing the end of the world. He says like the sky, the sky is being rolled up like a scroll. I don't know what that looks like. But it's clear to me that he's describing the end of the world. Things are coming to a close. Things are, things are starting to wrap up. They're being rolled up like a scroll. 
We know that, for example, stars can't literally fall to the earth, but whatever it is that John sees in his vision here, he's clearly communicating that this is the end. This is the end here. Again, remember what the seals are. They are preliminary previews of tribulation on the earth, both what has been happening and what will happen when the scroll is opened. And, and these seal judgments have covered everything from the resurrection and ascension of Christ, all the tribulation throughout the church age, all the way up to the very end, which is what this sixth seal is focusing on. And then in the last three verses of chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, John describes a vast array of mankind, a di- diverse assortment of mankind who will experience this end time judgment. Verse 15 says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. So no one spared. The rich and the powerful are also judged. Even the slave and everyone. No one is spared. The final judgment spares no one. And it's clear here that our station in life, our money, our accomplishments, our accolades, none of that in any way lessens the dreadfulness of that day. All of them, we're told, hide themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Isaiah prophesies about the coming great day of the Lord in Isaiah 2 verse 19 and says this, And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes in the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. They're hiding from the Lord because they know they have nothing to shield them from his coming wrath and judgment. And John tells us that at some point they realize that his judgment is inescapable because he records them as saying in verses 16 and 17, as they call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? These people in John's vision have come to the terrible realization that his judgment, God's judgment and wrath is inescapable. That they must face their creator and answer for their sin and rebellion against him. And they conclude the great day of their wrath has come. And so they would rather the mountains fall on them and kill them than face the wrath of God. Can't you just hear their desperation as they call out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Indeed, who can stand? I'm grateful that It's as if Jesus hits pause here in the breaking of these seals at this moment. Before we get to the seventh seal, we have an interlude in chapter 7. 
as God answers that question. It's almost as if Jesus says, who can stand in that day? I'll show you. And he gives John a vision of 144,000 whom I will propose to you when we get to that represents the entire church. All the redeemed of the ages and they are sealed. Sealed from what? From this great day of the Lord that is described in the sixth seal. Sealed and protected from the final judgment. And that Judgment that's described here in this sixth seal. Friend, it's coming. It's just a matter of time. It's coming. The sun may be shining today figuratively, but there's a coming a day when it will turn to darkness, and then the judgment comes. And that judgment, as we're told here, will be terrifying, inescapable, and eternal. It doesn't matter whether you're alive for it or not. The first death will not shield you from the second death. Physical death will not deter spiritual judgment. The wrath of him who sits on the throne and from the Lamb will be poured out on all unrighteousness and sin. Who can stand in that day? Only those who are sealed by the Lamb. Only those whose robes have been dipped in the blood of the Lamb such that they are white. Only those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ and trusted in His finished work on the cross as their only hope from certain and deserved punishment or rebellion. Not those, mind you, who come to Jesus for a better life. No. Only those who come to Jesus for rescue for salvation from certain and deserved judgment have you come to jesus have you come to faith in christ and trusted in his finished work as your only hope if so then praise god literally praise god for you will be sealed on that day you will be sealed and you will escape this final judgment, not on your own merit, but on the merit of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. Praise God. Now, you may suffer persecution in this life and it may get bad and somehow this is bringing God glory. Friend, he may even allow you as so many millions have over the centuries he may allow you to offer your own blood on the sacrificial altar of martyrdom. But even in death, you're sealed because you are his by faith. No matter how bad the tribulation gets in this life, you will be spared this final judgment. Praise God. But if you do not trust in Christ, if you continue to reject Christ and his gospel, then friend, there is coming a day when you will plead for the mountains to fall on you. 
that you might escape the coming wrath of God against your sin. But you won't escape it. You will not escape that judgment. And it will be terrible, inescapable, and final for all eternity. The good news for you this morning, if that describes you, is that God is still assembling his gathering of people from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language. And perhaps that includes you. If you'll only come to him in faith this morning, trusting not in your own ability to be good and perform for him, but trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross as your only hope for rescue from what you deserve. If that describes you, Will you come to faith in Christ this morning and be saved and be rescued from this judgment? And fellow believer in Christ, if this is true, and it is, oh, how we must be compelled to take the gospel to the nations, beginning with our neighbors, our coworkers and friends, and extending literally to the ends of the earth. We have the only message of hope in light of such a certain and deserved judgment that is coming. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this good news. It doesn't seem like good news. When we, when we recognize that we have made such a mess not only of our lives but of this world, that this world is hopelessly and endlessly stained by sin and needs to be made new as you have made us new in Christ. We thank you that you have a plan that was set in motion before the foundation of the world to bring this world to an end and usher in a new heaven and a new earth, to bring an answer for all sin and unrighteousness, even our own, to judge finally and completely all rebellion against you and to rescue forever and completely your children. Father, I pray for those among us in this very room And within the hearing of my voice, who've never trusted in you, God, would you, by your grace, make them to feel the weightiness of the judgment that is coming and see that their only hope to escape that is to trust in Christ and be restored to you in faith. We ask, Lord, that you would give them that faith to trust in you and that they would stop leaning on and trusting their own merits, but trust the finished work of Christ and call on him as Lord and Savior. Father, would you compel us as a church, would you compel us as a faith family to take this message of hope to a people who are blind to the judgment that is coming. They don't see the train that's coming on the track, and yet we have the hope for them. Compel us, Lord, out of a love for the lost, out of a concern for the lost, and out of a desire to see you worshiped where you currently aren't, to take the gospel to the nations. May you be glorified in us as a church. And Lord, may this picture, may this picture of the end, and may this picture of the souls of those who are slain because of their faith in Jesus Christ be an encouragement to us and strengthen us as a church and edify us as a church and prepare us as a church to persevere no matter what tribulations may come. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.